0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More immigrants in Colorado want to know what to do if federal agents show up at their homes or workplaces. CPR's Rachel Estabrook recently went to a Know Your Rights training at a church on Federal Boulevard in Denver. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. What would you say is the biggest takeaway from trainings like these?
1: Well, it's that immigrants, even if they're in the country illegally, do have rights. So an organization that advocates for minority and immigrant students in school put on this training. It's called Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, Parents and Young People United. Uh, Tanya Chades is an organizer there.
2: At the base level, we want to make sure people realize that the Constitution protects everyone regardless of immigration status. So if you're in the United States, you have basic rights like the right to remain silent. And those are things that people who are immigrating to the United States don't necessarily know, especially if they're
1: undocumented. So what's the training like? Well, the night I went, it was for student leaders. About eight of them came and they'll bring the lessons back to their school communities. Uh, Padre C. Jovenes does at least one of these trainings a month for different groups. And they go through different scenarios, like what to do in a traffic stop or when an immigration agent comes to your house. And they do role playing. So, you know, they had two students go to the front of the room, pretend to be at home, while one of the instructors put on a police hat, like from a costume shop with huh. aviator glasses. And she joked that she'd been converted into an ICE agent, but they were very serious about this. So she she raps on the table, you know, pretending she's at their door at 430 in the morning and she demands in Spanish that they show her their papers.
0: We should say we don't have audio of this because they asked you not to record.
1: Right. So they didn't want to draw attention to any of the students with undocumented status.
0: Then what happened?
1: They teach people to take out their phones and record an interaction like that. Um, They also say to not open the door because that essentially invites agents into the home. And they say to ask for a warrant, Um, you know, if it's a search warrant, to slide it under the door or through a window. And they explain that while a search warrant would let the agents enter the house and look around, an arrest warrant is only for one Person and so that person can you know squeeze through the door and leave without exposing other family members to law enforcement.
0: It sounds really intense. What other advice did they have at this training?
1: You know, it was intense, and they teach students and parents to use a series of magic words. They call them palabras mágicas. Like, have I done something wrong? And am I going? Uh, or you know, they'll say, I'm going to remain silent. Um, Tanya Chides, who we heard from, says they're hearing from more people who want to set up emergency plans, what to do with American-born kids and things like their homes and their cars if they get deported unexpectedly. Um, her family has done this. Chides was born in Mexico, and she's a DACA recipient. That means she's temporarily shielded from deportation because she was brought here as a kid. And her parents are undocumented, and her three younger siblings are U.S. citizens.
2: Obviously, the biggest concern for my parents was, if we get deported, who's going to take care of your younger siblings? And they're all underage. So right now, we are in the process of figuring out, you know, a power of attorney letter for me to take care of my siblings. And that is definitely a scary conversation to have to have. It's a whole lot of responsibility and just a lot of pressure to have to talk through in case of an emergency.
1: You know, she's 24 years old, looking at the prospect of taking care of her siblings. Um, She went to the Wharton School of Business at Penn, and she was a teacher before becoming a community organizer. So she's responsible, but it's still a lot to take on.
0: Yeah, a lot on her shoulders if that occurs. Uh, I feel like we need some context, Rachel. So are these Know Your Rights trainings new?
1: No. Um, Padre C. Jovenes has held them on and off since the 90s. Um, during the Obama years, several other immigrants' rights groups in Denver took up the mantle. But now there's so much demand that they say all the groups are offering training. Uh, the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition holds a few a month in Summit County and the Roaring Fork Valley. So it's not just Metro Denver. And they say schools and human service agencies, other community groups have asked for these trainings.
0: You mentioned President. Obama, he deported a record number of people. Right. I'm curious, is the new higher level of anxiety
1: warranted? You know, I've been wondering that, too, um, ever since one immigrant advocate told me she was having sort of deja vu to the early days of the last administration. Um, President Obama doesn't get nearly as much criticism for being anti- immigrant, but particularly in his first term, he was aggressive. And you know, later he showed some discretion in focusing on what he called felons over families. Um, he also offered protection for immigrants like Tanya Chides, who were brought here as children. Uh, I talked to the head of Padre Jovenes, Ricardo Martinez, for some perspective on this. He's led the organization since 2001.
3: Honestly, in terms of what happened under Obama, in terms of getting people getting picked up, that's been the same. Uh, you know, we have cases. Some of our members whose uh, spouse got a ticket. He was through the all the whole program, pays his fees. And then on the last day, when he's going to get a certificate to go back to court, he gets deported. ICE is there for him. And this is before Trump. Uh, the people were just getting picked up because they were contacted. And that's been true under Obama, and but now more aggressively under Trump.
1: You know, in a lot of ways, the Trump administration is taking cues from earlier administrations, including Obama, like how they want local law enforcement to do more immigration work. But no police or sheriff's offices in Colorado currently have agreements with the feds to do immigration arrests. And that's a message that the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition really wants to get across right now in these trainings. You know, a cop pulling you over and asking you for your papers, that should never be happening. There are currently, that we're aware of, no arrangements, no contracts giving local police authority to act as immigration. And that's an organizer at CERC that I talked to. Um, And it is particularly important, maybe confusing in Colorado, because this state used to require that local law enforcement report people to the feds. But that law was repealed in 2013. So
0: what is different now under the Trump administration that is causing so much anxiety?
1: Truly, rhetoric is a big thing. And, you know, the president's promise to build the best, the biggest wall you've ever seen. Um, His spokesman has said he wants to take the shackles off of immigration agents. That's a quote. And on the ground, advocates say that's happening here. You may have seen a video recently. Uh, There were some agents at a state courthouse in Denver. Are you here with immigration enforcement? Yes. You are here. Okay. Are you coming here to make an arrest? Yes. Do you have a warrant? My name is Whitney Leeds, a local attorney. Thank you. So we're we're listening to a local attorney, as you heard, approaching two guys. They're dressed in plain clothes, and she asks them a bunch of questions about why they're there. Most of which the agents won't answer. Um, They are legally allowed to be there at the courthouse. But the concern that some people have is that if you're an immigrant and you witness a crime, let's say, or you're suspected of one, but Mm -hmm. you think you're innocent, maybe you're not going to show up at court for a hearing or to testify if you think that you're going to be pulled out and deported. Ricardo Martinez says immigration agents were in the courthouse before Trump, but they weren't as open about it.
0: And there are new policies that have rolled out under this administration, right?
1: Yes. So Trump's made the majority of undocumented people a priority for deportation, and that expands the priorities at the end of the Obama administration. The president is also creating a new office to help victims of crimes committed by, quote, removable aliens. And by the way, many people will see that as a good thing, but it alarms folks who are concerned. Concerned about immigrants' rights, and one other thing that everyone I've spoken with says they're concerned that two uh, DACA recipients were arrested recently. Again, these are young people whom the the Obama administration had protected.
0: Right, and what has the Trump administration said about that DACA point?
1: Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, tweeted recently that DACA does not necessarily mean you're immune from deportation. ICE can still revoke that status if a recipient commits a crime or is found to be in a gang, for example. But those arrests struck fear in communities in Colorado, and they've contributed to people wanting to know more about their rights as immigrants. Um, As you well know, we have asked Immigration and Customs Enforcement to make someone available to be on this show. The agency has said there's too much in flux right now to discuss or activities in Colorado, but that could change in the future.
0: And we look forward to that. Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. CPR's Rachel Estabrook, as you heard, she reports there's high demand among immigrants and their supporters in Colorado to get schooled on their rights. That's as President Trump intensifies immigration enforcement. We are getting a clearer picture of Trump's budget priorities. Big boosts in defense spending is what he wants. Cuts to domestic programs as a result. Tomorrow, CPR's environment reporter on what that could mean for federal laboratories in Colorado. Okay, what effect would the Republican replacement of Obamacare have on Colorado? Numbers out today give us something of a picture. Hundreds of thousands of Coloradans would lose coverage, and the state would lose billions in federal funds— The GOP GOP plan, rather, would make sweeping changes to Medicaid, which grew in Colorado and many other states. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke to Joanne Allen.
4: This new report comes from the nonpartisan, nonprofit Colorado Health Institute. With more details available this week on the Republican plan, they looked at what it might mean for the state. So what is the headline?
5: Well, the headline is that about 600,000 Coloradans whose health care is insured through Medicaid are projected to lose their coverage between 2020 and 2030. The total cost to the state over that period would be roughly $14 billion. Medicaid, which covers the poor, elderly and disabled, gets hit hard under the Republican plan. It gets cut by $880 billion, and that would hit some states harder, especially those like Colorado, that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Here's the Colorado Health Institute's senior policy analyst, Emily Johnson.
1: This is a big deal. This is a lot of money. Colorado is a state where additional money that we would have to spend would have to come from something else. This is something that could have an impact that I think goes beyond Medicaid.
5: The folks who gain insurance through the expansion of Medicaid were single adults who make less than about $16,000 a year. They were uninsured before, and they'd be the ones likely left without insurance if the Republican plan is enacted as it currently stands.
4: You spoke with the lieutenant governor about the impact of these cuts
6: under this legislation. What was her take?
5: Yes, I interviewed Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn, who you might recall had a long career in health care. She was a top executive at the health giant Kaiser. Lynn says about a third of the state budget currently goes to Medicaid, and the federal government has covered the bulk of the expansion of Medicaid to date. So if that support goes away, Lynn said, the state simply doesn't have the money to make up for it.
1: The Medicaid cut to the state budget, the impact on our state budget, would be about a billion dollars a year. So... We have to figure out how to find that money, and that's not easy to find.
5: I asked her how the state might absorb the cuts to Medicaid, and she said that it can't. Also, this Republican plan puts a cap on all Medicaid funding to states from the feds. That means there would be less money for Colorado to spend on its existing Medicaid population, which is the poor, disabled, and elderly. And that includes many people in nursing homes whose long-term care is paid for by Medicaid. I
1: think it's going to be almost impossible to absorb the cuts. We have more people that we're covering in the state. We have a population that's growing in the state, and we don't have an appetite for increasing taxes, quite frankly.
4: Okay, John, so break this down geographically.
6: How might this Republican plan affect folks around the state who are on Medicaid?
5: As I've been reporting, the Medicaid expansion saw a lot of growth all over the state. In fact, Every county saw increases in enrollment. That includes the Denver metro area, a Democratic stronghold, and rural Colorado, where President Trump and his party did well in 2016. Again, here's the Colorado Health Institute's Emily Johnson.
1: Those rural areas saw a lot of the greatest gains in insurance due to Medicaid. And so it is a lot of those places that did go red that would be then seeing some of the largest impacts from a rollback of a Medicaid expansion.
5: Many hospitals, including rural hospitals, benefited from the Medicaid expansion. They're likely to get hit hard, too. Also, you can see a link to that report on our website.
0: That is our health reporter, John Daly, speaking with CPR's Joanne Allen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Springtime is about renewal, but for Fanny Starr of Denver, this time of year reminds her of what she calls the hole in her heart. In April of nineteen forty five, she was liberated from a concentration camp, except that it took her weeks to realize she was free. It's a story we wanted to document. So I traveled to her home where she lives with her daughter. Starr is ninety-five, still speaks to school groups about the Holocaust a warning that her descriptions are graphic. She was about 19 or 20 and remembers lying in a field at Auschwitz under a reddish sky, feeling something fall on her.
4: Ashes. The ashes fell. was no hail, was no snow. Ashes.
0: What do you remember thinking at that point?
4: We didn't know what is what. We just sat like numb. see what happened, because we didn't know what is our future waiting for us. If we be annihilated, if we let it live, because when we came to Auschwitz, Mengele, he did the selection. This I cannot recall. Either I went right for a working place, either some people went left to the chambers and the ball of fire.
0: You mentioned Mengele. This is Dr. Mengele, who, yeah. who was a doctor at Auschwitz.
4: Yeah, I, I can see him each time when you're talking about this black uniform.
0: And he was famous for his yeah, just god-awful experiments at yeah. Auschwitz. Yeah. What do you remember about being in that
4: line? We were marching to a big warehouse, and they strip our civilian clothes. And after to shaved my hair, not just everybody's hair, whoever came over in that big place. And myself and my sister, when we were just, couldn't recognize each other, and we were shouting, her name was Renya, my name is Fela, and this way we found each other. And after that, we lined up and went in a big, huge field, laying probably a week, maybe longer, outside on the ground, and we just crying, cry.
0: You were separated from the rest of your family at Auschwitz.
4: Oh, sure, just me and her. More together.
0: You're you're pointing to a photo yeah, of your my, sister that's my sitting sister. near
4: us. Yeah. The rest of them went I didn't know why they went that time. We found out after the war. What did you find out? Who's alive, who was dead, and all the catastrophic things were the dead to humanity.
0: Because to be in the camps was to be very isolated, so you it, was, were isolated. it was hard to know what was going on in Absolute. the rest of the world.
4: You, you just woke up. You could go, days not washed.
0: Days without washing. Yeah. Well, why don't we step back just a little bit? Can we do that? Yeah. You were born and raised about three hours away from where they built Auschwitz. Yeah. In Woj, Poland. To think that home was so close, but so far away. What do you remember about your childhood
4: in Woj? What I remember, be very active, belong to the youth group, go two, three times a week.
0: There were five children, and uh, your family operated a grocery store, is that right? Yeah, uh-huh. And later on, your family was in the tannery business.
4: Yeah, took that skin... And they preserved it. And after that, went to a special factory where they make hard soles for shoes.
0: Hard soles for shoes. Yeah.
4: And your family did well. Yeah. After that, we became pretty good off.
0: Pretty good off.
4: Till Hitler came in 1939, everything fell apart.
0: 1939. Your family was forced into the Jewish ghetto in Woj.
4: Yeah.
0: After the Nazi invasion. You were a teenager. Yeah. And what was it like in the ghetto? This was one of the largest ghettos in Europe, I believe. Yeah,
4: they brought lots of people from small towns because small towns didn't have no trains. And my big city had a huge train going to whole Europe.
0: So Łódź was was connected to the rail and, and thus efficient yeah. for the Germans. And you were there in the ghetto for, I think, five years,
4: from 1939 to 1944, and after that we went to Auschwitz. Auschwitz. What was life like in the ghetto? Misery, nothing to eat, a lot typhus, not typhus, uh, diarrhea, what they're calling dysentery. Yeah. And the hundreds were die daily. The life in the ghetto was no life. Went to work, came home, and was confined.
0: You had essentially a, a slave I job.
4: worked in the ghetto in a shop for tailoring. But I didn't have no idea how to put a needle on a thimble, and so forth and so on. Thanks to all the she was over there. She showed me how to use a timber. After that, I worked in another place. What I used to make from straw, dry straw shoes for the military. And we all had bleeding hands because straw was dry and stiff. You would weave straw shoes? Yeah, we made shoes. And after that, I worked in our shop where they brought all the clothing from Auschwitz. We ripped it open. We have little scissors and little knives. Take the garments apart. Take the gold and diamonds and all domination money from the whole world.
0: That is... Clothes would be sent back from the camps. Yeah, from Presumably Auschwitz,
4: I brought it to Lodz.
0: And these are the clothes that people would have been wearing to the camps and would have been stripped of, and they were hiding their belongings in those coats. Sure, everybody. It was in the
4: shoulders, every place. We put the diamonds in big, huge jars, the gold pieces, and big, huge barrels. Wooden barrels, name it. And all the garments, what you took apart, you have to select like the sleeve, like the front and the back, and make bundles and tie it and put it in a big pile.
0: What were the conditions like in the ghetto? Tell me about.
4: Dirty. Everything was limited.
0: Food was limited.
4: Sure. You're lucky. If you could have a piece of horse meat. Do you remember being hungry a lot? <laughs> we were a skeleton.
0: How many days would you go without food?
4: I was so undernourished, I couldn't walk no more. Yeah. Thanks to my father, he went and bought some vitamins on the black market. Vitamins on the black yeah, market? Like, yeah, it black market. And, you know, the Polacks came in and sold some. Thanks to that vitamin, I just started walking. Did you have nightmares? I have today nightmares. Then we didn't have nothing. It was not normal life. We were just scared. We didn't know any minute who could knock on the door and come take us.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you feel human at that point? No. No?
4: No. We try our best to do what we could do.
0: People may hear a little scratching sound. That's you. This is (laughs) your. That's your safety blanket. There. It's just a a, a Kleenex that you're rubbing. Do you get a little nervous? This is
4: nervous. It's nervous.
0: (laughs) Do you remember if your parents talked to you much about what was going on? Nobody knew.
4: Either you live, either you die.
0: Did you see
4: the death often up close? (laughs) You saw. You know, people were dying in the streets, and there was no burial place to where to take it. People buried the people, picked up from the streets and taken to the cemetery. There was no horse, there was no buggy. They made their own thing, and they took the people to the cemetery. It was just chaos. They took... Terrible chaos.
0: They, they made a makeshift cart of some kind. Yeah. And Jews did that for other Jews?
4: Yeah, we saw it. It was a big epidemic in Lodz in that time.
0: That was dysentery.
4: Yeah, dysentery. Either you die from starvation, you die from disease.
0: You left the ghetto in 1944, again, after nearly five years there. And you and much of your extended family were crammed onto a train car. Did you know where you were headed at that point? No. No. What do you remember about that ride?
4: Crying, screaming.
0: It was very full.
4: Oh, terrible. It was in September.
0: And it was cold.
4: Bitter-cold. From the train, we went to that big warehouse, and they stripped, and they gave you the striped dress, no, and they were nothing, just the stress. So this is at your arrival involved. at
0: Auschwitz, yeah. and you're handed those somewhat infamous uniforms, those striped uniforms.
4: We didn't know. We didn't care. Who cared? We were just lost our will to live.
0: You were not just at Auschwitz, but you were shuffled between a number of different camps. Oh, yeah. So I
4: went on the train, days, went back and forth, back and forth, till we arrived in Ravensbrück.
0: At Ravensbrück?
4: Yeah. I was lucky were talking about Ravensbrück. I just somehow, I cut my hand here.
0: You cut your hand uh, between your thumb and your forefinger?
4: I don't know how and what, and got it affected. And that select me to go to the gas chamber.
0: They saw the cut, and you were going to the gas station. And
4: he tried, convinced me. I spoke a little German, and I just, this is a disease. And I said, this is no disease. I cut myself, and this got infected. I said, you are a doctor. Surprised he didn't smack me and take the gun and kill me because I was fighting it. And he let me through, and he didn't kill me.
0: I'll say that Ravensbrook, where that happened, was a camp for women that was north of the Berlin. The just women. You also were at Milhausen. Yeah. Tell me about it.
4: Milhausen, what I worked for, the V2.
0: V2. Th- these were the German rockets. Yeah. You ma- you helped make those?
4: Sure. Parts. And mm. Milhausen, I went to the ladies' room. You didn't go on your own. God forbid. We was with the SS lady and a German shepherd. And I went into the ladies' room. I saw a a paper. A newspaper. And when I pick paper, when you take it, shimmers, make noise. And she opened the door and dragged me out and beat me unhumanly.
0: She beat you? Yeah. Why would you have been beaten for looking at the newspaper? They
4: didn't find, find out any news. I was not looking for news. I was looking the day and the year.
0: You didn't know what day or year it was?
4: We didn't know which year, which day. It was nothing. We looked like unwanted people on this earth.
0: But if you caught wind of what was happening, if you saw the headlines, that would have been empowering, and she didn't want that.
4: Uh, it took a second. Mm. I picked it up, and in a second she was... At the door, forgive me, I was peeing, because she just came
0: in <laughs> It's okay. you can say that on the radio.
4: <laughs> My pardon was the truth, and she came rushing because I was curious saying a paper so you saw the date? Unfortunately not because she just came in.
0: I see it was too fast, but you felt abandoned by the world,
4: oh. He occupied Hungary, Romania, Poland, so forth and so on. What could you do? He was a massive murderer in the world. Hitler. Yeah. I don't want to name, mention his name. What did you call him? Himachimo.
0: Himakshimo. Yeah. This means, may his name be obliterated. Uh,
4: yeah, from this earth.
0: In, in Hebrew. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: This is how you refer to him when you refer to him. You know
4: when? After the war. Matter of fact, we were in, in Kentucky when we came. So, you know, I just say, a rabbi said this, and since then, it's very popular.
0: So, you learned this term from a rabbi once you came to the United States?
4: This was, yeah. Did you think God existed at this time? No. I was very mad at my God. We were these chosen people. Why he allowed this?
0: You were mad at your God?
4: I'm still mad at him. Yeah, I'm still not forgiven. Do you pray? No, I just keep it in my heart. Why? That word, why? Why we deserve it? What the crime we commit against humanity, I just annihilate a race. I became an atheist.
0: You became an atheist? Yeah. In the camps? Yeah. Did
4: the After that, I got married. I had children.
0: So you re-embraced Judaism when you became a mom. Is that right? For your kids. My
4: husband did. He was more religious. I was born a very modern home.
0: He was more religious. The last camp... Was um, Bergen-Belsen. Was Bergen-Belsen, which the British liberated on yeah. April 15th, 1945.
4: Yeah. It's just approaching pretty soon.
0: Is that a date you hold dear?
4: It's a big hole in my
0: heart. A big hole in your heart. What do you remember about the, the troops liberating the camp? Who, Anything?
4: Who knew? I didn't know. What do you mean? I didn't know I was liberated. The Red Cross came, and she said, You are free. Who cared? I was laying... In bed, halfway dead. I just called myself many times, why did you let me live what I deserve it?
0: You thought that living was a cruelty at that point. Mm. It's interesting because I, I think of liberation as this joyful moment. Where? Right?
4: hook I didn't know we I liberated. I found out. Many weeks later.
0: That's when you realized. Yeah. Oh goodness, something has changed. Fanny, can you run through who you lost in the camps? My mom,
4: my dad, my older sister, my youngest brother, uncles, aunts, cousins. The majority of your family. Yeah. Just five left of it. Five made it out.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: How old were you when, when you were liberated?
4: I Approximately, I would say 22.
0: You say approximately. Is that because I you, just,
4: I couldn't remember. You lost track of your age. That's right. You
0: lost track of dates.
4: You said it.
0: Fanny, I want to talk to you about a chapter that I think is less well-known, certainly than the concentration camps which is the displaced persons camps. You were there for some time.
4: Yeah. This was so Bergen-Belsen, was the old camp. The barracks, everything was destroyed. After. And we went to, like, military barracks.
0: They had destroyed the concentration camp, and, and you were transferred to this sort of military installation. You were still sick at that point. Oh,
4: yeah. How long were
0: you in the displaced persons camp? Do you remember?
4: Wait a minute, we got 1945, 1948, we went to Israel.
0: So three years you were there.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And what what was life like there? So you got better.
4: Not too many activities, till I met my husband.
0: You met your husband, Zessa Star. Am I pronouncing that right?
4: Jewish is Zorach.
0: Zorach Star.
4: Yeah, Zorach Hashem.
0: And he was in the displaced persons camp as well. What do you remember about meeting him?
4: We just sit down and talk. And I was a ball of fire, singing, dancing, and appealed to him. And that was it. And <laughs> we fell in love.
0: Did you get married in the displaced persons camp? Yeah.
4: You see this. What is this? The tallis.
0: The tallis. This is the almost kind of scarf-like item that you wear in synagogue. Yeah. Yeah.
4: This is our chuppah. Four guys had four sticks.
0: So this was put up above your heads as you got married in the camp.
4: In the camp.
0: And you had your first daughter in in the displaced persons camp. She just turned 70. She just turned 70.
4: Yeah.
0: But eventually you had to make plans to get out of there.
4: We made plans. We went to Israel. Israel. Yeah. Mm. My husband's profession was a tailor. And his profession didn't go too well over there. We couldn't find a job. So, came back to the camp.
0: Wait, you went to Israel, and then you came back to a displaced persons camp? Yeah. Oh, my. And you eventually came to the United States? Yeah. In 1951. Did he land a job as a tailor here? Yeah. He did.
4: We came to Kentucky. And from Kentucky, we went to Des Moines, Iowa and he had a very high prestigious job in tailoring. He was not a tailor like today. He put a big cloth of fabric and chalk and rulers. I have the rulers, I have the chalk, everything. These
0: items are quite precious to you today. Do you think you could have married someone who hadn't also been in the concentration camps?
4: No. This was my first love. If he be alive, i will be married 71 years. No.
0: Because there was a sense that he understood what you'd gone through, and you understood what he went through?
4: Mm. Matter of fact, I have a friend who goes after me. I said, sorry. <laughs> Someone was after you recently, and you said no? No. Why? Plan- I don't feel like. I'm just very content with my children and myself.
0: Do you still feel married to your husband?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Very much so.
0: Did you two talk about your experiences in the Holocaust? Oh, yeah. Yeah?
4: Oh, very much so.
0: What would you say? That's
4: the reason we started talking, and we belong to the ADL.
0: The Anti-Defamation League. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: We went to school, started going to schools.
0: You and he started talking in we schools about the we, Holocaust. We
4: well, were the first one, started talking in the schools.
0: Here in Denver.
4: Yeah. And after that, went nationwide. What year? Do you remember? In 1967. Why did you want to talk about it to kids? We have to tell the people what we went through. Let the world, now we have another repeat going Ruin our cemeteries, in the they let the dead in
0: peace. You're talking about the desecration of Jewish cemeteries that yeah. has been going on. What, you, what is your reaction when you see those Terrible.
4: Stories? I cried the other day, my heart out. I said, are we going to have another Hitler era?
0: Are you scared?
4: Yeah. Matter of fact, when I spoke in Port Collins, I mentioned it, about it.
0: You're still speaking in schools today.
4: Yeah. Fanny, what are you
0: most grateful for today?
4: Grateful I am. I have my children. I lost my beautiful son. Thanks to her,
0: your your daughter who's yeah. sitting at the table with us. She
4: is, and my oldest daughter, and my great grandchildren, my great my great sons, two great sons, and friends go now. And friends, I created a little group. We started you not know, gambling a little bit. A little gambling. Op- yeah, just, you know, we have to just pass it on our dead time someplace.
0: Have you been back to Poland or Germany? No desire. No desire?
4: No, to Poland for sure not. Mm-hmm. The Polacks were very anti-Semite against the Jews before. Do you sometimes wonder how you survived? Don't ask, you're asking a very simple question. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ask all of them the same way. that would say, "I think nobody knew what and when and how. Maybe the will. Maybe he did it."
0: Looking up at God, there. Yeah. Or you, you said maybe it's will.
4: And I just believe in humanity. I'm feeding homeless people for many, many years. And I became a humanitarian, and I care for humanity.
0: Fanny, thank you for being with us. Thanks. 95-year-old Fanny Starr is a Holocaust survivor who lives in Denver. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. A cassette tape of Irish drinking songs led to Denver musician Adam Goldstein's love affair with Celtic music. He and two other musicians started the band Avorneen.
3: now that dum there's a nice sweet last and her name's Mary Mack. Make no mistake, she's the miss I'm gonna talk There's an awful lot of bells that would get up on her track, but something in that they'll have to get up early. I merry mac father's making merry mac merry me my father's making me merry merry mac i'm going to marry Mary for my merry to care of me we'll all be making merry when i marry merry merry mac
0: the band will perform tomorrow at ned kelly's irish pub in littleton goldstein the- speaks with nathan Heppel.
3: welcome
6: to the program adam
3: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
6: I understand you and your bandmates, violinist C. L. Morden and multi instrumentalist Eric Parker, don't have direct ties uh, to Irish folk music, but all three of you are longtime musicians and have really connected with the traditions and style of this genre. What makes it so
3: um, compelling to you? That's true. Uh, I myself, I'm a rare Colorado native. I grew up in Aurora, Uh, and for me personally. Um, You mentioned the cassette that I found when I was right out of high school. It was an anonymous cassette. No artists were credited. It was just a random recording in some Irish pub, unnamed. And from the first time I heard it, it just felt right. It felt like something uh, that was natural and it made sense. And um, speaking for the other members of the band, C uh, is from Northern California, California. Uh, and she comes from background, uh, with a, a father that played a lot of Celtic music. Okay. So that came from childhood and Eric, uh, majored in jazz at Lamont school of music and he's a saxophone player, but he found flogging Molly when he was in high school and it just went from there. So I think for all of us, it was just a very natural kind of attraction and love for the music that stemmed deep from an, our DNA, something like that. <laughs>
6: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, so so does, does the band identify more with Celtic music or, or, or Irish folk music? I mean, because I, I know there is a difference between the two.
3: There is a difference. And uh, at our core, it's more Irish than anything else. M- okay. Most of the standards that we play are Irish. Most of the ballads that I sing are Irish. But with Celtic music, uh, a lot of stuff comes into play. And there's a lot of cross pollination as it were so we play some Scottish songs Uh, we even play some polkas there's some Breton stuff that goes in there there's some uh, not a lot of Welsh stuff but some early New England folk music that was directly impacted by those traditions and started to morph once it crossed the ocean so most of the songs on Beloved are standards
6: yes Uh, there is one original track on it though Uh, it's called Iman
3: Iman In the day when we meet again, I remember the sound of your soft, dulcet tones with the smell of your hair as it blew in the wind.
6: You call the song a, a tearjerker, uh, and you wrote it when you
3: were around 19, right? Right. So what made you revisit it for this album? So the basic melody uh, is an old Irish air, and it was sung in Gaelic. And I, Gaelic is a very difficult language to learn on many levels. I mean, people have enough of a difficult time pronouncing the name of our band. (laughs) Uh, So I wrote lyrics when I was 18 or 19 because I just thought the melody was so gorgeous. And then when we started the band, uh, it was just something that I brought up during one of our jam sessions. C took to it very quickly. Uh, when Eric came in with a flute, we just thought it was perfect instrumentation, and it was for us the ideal way to kind of bridge old tradition with what we were trying to do, uh, and it per- it really did serve as a perfect transition because since the album came out, we've been really working on writing more originals that take that same tack, fusing tradition with. Sounds that we want to incorporate that represent our background, our our status as Americans, our status as fans of a whole host of different genres. So it was really kind of the kickoff to what I see as our continuing musical mission, as it were.
6: So so what's the ultimate goal here? Uh, Do you hope to hear your band on a pop or mainstream radio station someday? Is that your goal?
3: I always joke that we play music that isn't necessarily going to break into the top 10 pop hits along with Justin Bieber and... (laughs) uh, those kind of Either artists Katie but Perry or right like that. right it, it, you know but ultimately i would really love to bring more awareness here to this kind of music and uh, expose people where i'm from to the tradition and just how entrancing and vibrant and really uh, uh fascinating this music can be and the other part of it is that i would love to find a way to get us all back to ireland as often as possible
6: <laughs> Well, you and violinist C.L. Uh, C. did tour yes. uh, Ireland, right? And, yeah. and while you were there, you performed uh, one of the songs called Easy and Slow in, in a pub there. And, and I want to wrap up on on, on that tune. Uh, you say it was one of the highest points of your life. And, and while we listen, briefly tell me wh- what happened
3: there. So we had we had rented a car and we were driving all around the country. We tried to fit in as much as possible in two weeks. We went to this little tiny town in Claire called Doolin, which was reputed to have the best music. Everywhere we went, they saw our instruments and they said, you have to go to Doolin, you have to go to Doolin. And it was this town, I think during the winter, the population is maybe 500 people, 600 people. I may be wrong, but it's a very small town. And we went in uh, to a pub, they saw we had instruments. They all encouraged us to come up and sit down. Uh, And I sat down and I sang this song with uh, these Irish musicians and they were silent and respectful, and they let me sing the whole thing. And one of the women said that this was the best rendition of the tune that she'd ever heard, and I almost broke into tears at that moment. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Who came from Dungannon would bring her back home in the sweet by and by. And what's it to any man, whether or no, whether I'm easy or whether. I'm true, as she lifted her petticoat, easy and slow, and I tied up me sleeve for to buckle her shoe.
0: Adam Goldstein from the Denver Celtic band Avornian. He spoke with Nathan Heffel last March. This is the track Easy and Slow. You can hear Avornian tomorrow at Ned Kelly's Irish Pub in Littleton. Finally today, it appears the Denver Zoo has a sense of humor, even when it's the brunt of the joke. This past weekend, Saturday Night Live dreamed up a sketch about a really bad typo on the local news.
6: Let's check in with our field reporter, Donna Hemming, who's at the Denver Zoo with Danny Bangs, a, oh, cool job alert, professional animal pornographer.
0: (laughs) It's supposed to be photographer, but the teleprompter and graphics keep getting it wrong. So everything that's said becomes a double entendre.
5: Oh, I see a lot of tweets coming in Mm -hmm. from the Good Day Denver Live tweeters. You've got some fans, Danny. Ooh. (laughs) At Karen in Aspen says, Watching on mute at the gym, what the F is happening?
0: (laughs)
6: Well, I guess you can't believe you have such a cool job. How did you get started? Oh Well, I started with amateur stuff, and I would put it online. And National Geographic saw my work, gave me a job, and from there I found my new home here at the Denver
2: Zoo.
0: Well, after that show aired, the Denver Zoo made sure to separate fact from fiction, tweeting, quote, Lots of chatter about the portrayal of Denver Zoo on SNL. Just want to reassure you all, Danny Bangs is not a zoo employee. It ended the tweet with an emoji of a winky face. That's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner with Stephanie Wolf. This is CPR News.